Hello and welcome to Long Story Short, the podcast from Arcadis, where we focus on the recovery and revival of our cities. I'm Emma Nelson, and today we look at the hospital post-pandemic and the challenge ahead. We went into COVID with waiting lists of just over 4 million. We've now got uh, 6.1 million at the latest count. We'll examine what the staff in our hospitals need from their workplace. And it's not smarter medical kit. What would make my life better in the hospital, improve my well-being, would be a coffee shop. Changing facilities, staff rooms for staff and air conditioning. That's what I think would improve the environment. One of the main issues I have is lack of parking. And we'll hear some bright solutions to make our healthcare feel smoother and more human. There's no reason why we can't call cardiology heart, why we can't call orthopaedics bones. That's all ahead on Long Story Short, the Future Cities podcast from Arcadis. And a very warm welcome to today's programme. What did COVID teach us about what we need from our hospitals? From diverting resources and space to infection control, our major medical centres had to be repurposed at breakneck speed to anticipate a virus that we knew nothing about at the time. Well, to tell us more about what we do with the future of healthcare in our hospitals, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Smriti Singh. I'm a director at Arcadis. I'm the lead for healthcare transformation. And that means I work with healthcare organisations and systems to help make things better. And Simon James, chief exec of Kim's Hospital, the largest independent acute elective hospital in Kent. Thank you both very much indeed for joining me around the table today. It's a joy to have you with us. Smriti, may I begin with you? What were hospitals like before the pandemic? Before the pandemic, for the last few decades, hospitals have changed dramatically. We've thought a lot about comfort. We've moved towards single-sex wards. I've thought about creating nicer environments. And we've also become a lot more efficient. Certainly in the NHS, we have a high throughput of patients. We have a high turnover of beds. We have high levels of bed occupancy. So certainly within the NHS and in the public sector, we've got super efficient uh, hospitals. And we've been thinking about how to also make them better environments for patients. And where were you fitting in in terms of the private sector, Simon? Because at the time, the hospitals may be incredibly efficient, but they were full. Yeah, um, that's correct. I mean, I think the thing to say about the independent sector is that the more modern hospitals in the independent sector have been built to really smooth the patient pathways. So a good example of that would be that our operating theatres and our inpatient wards are all on the same floor, which may seem like a very simple thing, but it just means that we can get the patients from their beds uh, straight into the operating theatre and then following their safe surgery straight back into their beds again, which really makes a uh, big difference in terms of the efficiency um, and the way that we're able to deliver safe care. And that was obviously a safe and efficient and very well thought out plan. Then the pandemic comes along, Smriti, and I wonder how much people had actually factored in a a pandemic when they were designing hospitals and looking at layouts. So I think that the main thing we've learned is that we haven't had to think about airborne infections before uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, not since the 1960s when we had outbreaks of TB. So in a modern healthcare system in a, a Western country... Airborne infection is not a priority and infectious diseases generally were not a priority and and we're thinking much more broadly about health. So actually hospital design wasn't optimal when it came to dealing with airborne infections and that's been, I think, the big lesson from this pandemic. I mean, infection prevention is one of the primary focuses in running any hospital and although we haven't had a huge number of airborne diseases around, we've had MRSA, we've had E. coli, we've had C. diff 
and winter flu to deal with. And so prevention and control is very much built into the way that we operate uh, independent hospitals. And a lot of that is not necessarily in the design and the build of the hospital, but in the behaviour and the training of the staff that work in the hospital and support the care. Simon, so were you ready for something like COVID? Uh, No. I mean, it's a simple answer. I was just reflecting a little bit um, before I came here on you know, what type of disasters we did plan for or we did attempt to disaster for. And frankly, it wasn't much more than if there was a major plane crash or a major train crash in the local community and we were required to step in. Certainly, there was very, very little thought given to a pandemic. And yet this thing stuck around, didn't it? So let's look at the situation now. And I wonder how much COVID has become the driving factor in when we're designing hospitals, when we're improving hospitals. Smriti, we're hearing that some trusts are being told that in the future, up to seven out of 10 rooms should be single rooms. Single rooms alone aren't going to prevent airborne infection of a highly infectious disease, right? You need to think about ventilation. You need to think about drugs trolleys going in and out of rooms. You need to think about drug boxes within rooms, who's going to refill them. Uh, You need to think about food, how it goes in and out. So single rooms have multiple benefits, and as well as helping infection control, but they aren't a solution and they're not going to completely pandemic-proof any hospital. Smriti, tell us a little bit more about the broader long-term role of a hospital. We've been hearing for quite a long time now about how the community will play a bigger part. There's been an ongoing recognition that what affects the health of a local population is not just the availability of hospitals, but hospitals are what you call anchor institutions. So much happens within the vicinity of a local hospital that actually the hospitals are well placed to start addressing what we would call the wider determinants of health. Simon, what do you think about that? Um, I mean, one of the trends, if I want to put it in that way, that we're seeing now is more care being delivered closer to patients' homes and where patients aren't necessarily being asked to come into a hospital. So, you know, the government's programme around community diagnostics hubs would be a good example of how the NHS is reacting to that and responding to that. And we already operate five what we call outreach clinics across Kent where patients don't have to travel very far. They can go to the local GP practice and have what would traditionally have been provided in a secondary acute hospital. Now, that's got to be a good thing because the patients, A, are not having to travel and B, are not having to go to an acute hospital where there will be a much higher risk of catching something that's sort of circulating in the air. Where are you finding trends now, Simon? I mean, you mentioned a moment ago the idea of having more private care out in the community as well. Just tell us a little bit about what your patients are saying to you, because one of the rather the charming elements of being able to have private health care is that you can actually go into a hospital and see a surgeon or a doctor arguably much more quickly than you would do in the NHS. Do you have to override that feeling that doing something online or going to your local GP isn't isn't what they paid for? <laughs> It's a good question. We went into COVID with waiting lists of just over 4 million. We've now got uh, 6.1 million at the latest count. So we're going to have to do something about that. And a lot of these patients are waiting for what we would call elective care, which is planned care. So mechanical type issues, if I could use that terminology, a new hip or a new knee doesn't make them any less needy and it doesn't make them any less deserving. So what seems to be happening now and what we're observing is Models of care are coming out where they are splitting acute emergency care from what we call elective and planned care. And the independent sector is very much in the elective and planned care piece, if that makes sense. So 
There is learning that we can share with the NHS in terms of how to operate facilities which are focusing on plan care. And the NHS has their own good examples of delivering that type of care. There is a facility down in Epsom which has been operational for the last 10 years called Southwest London Elective Orthopaedic Centre. And, um, you know, they focus very much on orthopaedic surgery and don't do any emergency surgery. So I think there are, that in my mind is an area that the NHS should continue to explore and we are seeing them do that. Especially how much is the NHS aware of the fact that, yes, we have this huge elective backlog and as Simon mentioned, the mechanical stuff, the hips and the knees, which aren't life-threatening but make someone's life miserable, are something which can perhaps be moved out into the private sector. But, I mean, the the fact remains is that it still has to come out of an NHS budget. It does. And I I think one thing to say is the challenges we're seeing in the NHS we're seeing all over the world – But when you think about it, in other parts of our healthcare system, we do use private providers and we use them a lot. So when I worked for the NHS as programme director, I covered learning disabilities, autism and some mental health. And actually, we use significant proportion of private providers, partly because of capacity, but also because they were very good at what they did. How much is there still the sense that the NHS and the private sector are two separate things and should be treated as such? Because they've been running together for decades now, haven't they? Simon, could you just give us a little bit of an idea of the scale of the private sector's involvement with the NHS? So the NHS budget is around £116 billion and the private sector deliver about £1.7 billion a year of NHS-funded patients. Now, interestingly, last year, the government came out and said that they wanted to provide an additional £10 billion over the next four years. So that will, in effect, double the amount of money available for patients to be treated in the independent sector. I want to stress something, though. The independent sector, on its own, cannot solve this problem of the lack of capacity. We can provide some support and we can help deal with the beginnings of the solution. You're listening to Long Story Short, the podcast from Arcadis, where we focus on the recovery and revival of our cities. I'm joined in the studio today by Smriti Singh from Arcadis and Simon James, who's CEO of Kim's Hospital in Kent. And we're talking about the future of our healthcare buildings. What are they going to look like? What are they going to be needed for? What will patients see and experience? And what do the staff need? Let's hear from Stuart. He is a general manager of surgery at Medway Hospital. He has one very simple request. Something around navigation, number of patients that you see that are walking around, lost, don't know where to go. So simple layout, simple pathways, simple flow in the hospital, I think is also important. It's more around making sure that it feels a nice environment to both be in as a patient and to work in. So what we're hearing there from Stuart is that he wants the same thing that a patient wants, an easily navigable hospital, which makes his job easier and better for the patient. There's a window of opportunity to try and really do things we've been thinking about for years in terms of a better built environment. Arcada submitted an entry for the Wolfson Economics Prize, which this year was on hospital design. And we came up with an idea which nobody's challenged yet. And I just... I wonder why it's not being implemented because it's a very simple one. One of the ideas we came up with in our post-COVID hospital design was to change all signage to plain language English. It's a thing I'm really passionate about because I've worked with people with learning disabilities, but there's no reason why we can't call cardiology heart. 
why we can't call orthopedics bones, why we can't call neurology brain, making things, as Stuart was saying, a lot easier to navigate for most people. Mm. Simon, there's a real simplicity there, isn't there, in terms of making things as human as possible in a hospital? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting what Smitty was saying, because that very much ties into patient communication from doctors as well. And one of the recommendations coming out of the uh, Patterson review is that rather than doctors and consultants writing to GPs about a patient they've just seen in long technical terms, they actually write to the patient and explain what they've observed to the patient in patient-friendly English. So I think it really, really ties in with hospital signage and hospital layouts and guiding people around hospitals. You see it in a very practical sense as well. If you go into a hospital now, you see people with different name badges, which are dementia-friendly name badges. You might have spotted them, you know, yellow with a black name on them. So we are moving in that direction very encouragingly. And I don't think that's because of COVID. I think it's because we are bringing much more focus onto what patients want. And when you're also talking about the ability of hospital staff to do their job, well, let's hear now from some clinical staff, uh, some doctors, some surgeons, some nurses, about what they want in a hospital to make their jobs easier. Now, you and I might initially think that this is cutting-edge technology. It's quite the opposite. One of the main issues I have within my workplace is lack of parking. There's very limited on-site parking for staff and the criteria is quite strict. I think things like this would improve morale and be really nice for the people that work here. What would make my life better in the hospital and improve my well-being would be a coffee shop, giving you connection with the rest of the outside world, supermarket shop so that I could get things on the way home and also before work, a staff canteen within the theatre complex so that I didn't have to go anywhere during my theatre time and I could spend this with my colleagues. Changing facilities on all wards and areas, having staff rooms for staff and air conditioning. That's what I think would improve the environment. Really simple stuff, isn't it? Car parks and improvements that actually have very, very little to do with the surgical procedures themselves, Smriti. I agree with you. I think they're really quite simple things and things that somebody like me who works in a pleasant office environment with an M&S food next door take for granted. And it's come out in the work that we're doing. So we've been commissioned by a number of trusts seeing the opportunity to get some funding to improve staff well-being. They've commissioned us to understand how do people work and how do they want to work. And what are the opportunities within that? And we've seen some really interesting findings. We've contacted 7,000 staff and there were a few things which really jumped out. One of them was actually a number of staff could work primarily from home. One of the other findings was a lot of clinical staff wanted what we would call decompression space. They may not have expressed it like that. So space to just get some private, quiet downtime, which they don't have at the moment. The other thing a lot of clinical staff wanted was privacy for meetings because there's a real shortage of meeting space. Now, when you put all that together, you think, actually, we could use space a lot more optimally. Smriti, tell me how you solve this, though, because anybody who's ever been into a big hospital knows that it's grown up organically over the years and the decades, and whatever space you can see has something happening in it. So having a nice coffee shop, having a space to decompress and talk is wonderful for those who work in the hospitals but there will always be that argument won't there that if you have a space you really should fill it with a bed 
you, you need staff to actually manage the bed and manage the patients. I think this is where I think COVID has made an impact, actually, and is allowing us to have conversations we couldn't have had before COVID. Tell me, Simon, what the private sector can bring to this. I mean, you do, again, have that added luxury of a single room, of more spacious corridors. You can be more purpose-built in a way that the NHS certainly can't. But if you had a few tips and tricks, what would they be? So if you want people to deliver care, the first thing to do is to care for them. And things like car park, um, things like somewhere decent to go and get a meal and being very conscious of well-being of your team are things that we've worked on really, really hard. And COVID has brought a much sharper focus to that because whereas prior to COVID, people came to work with a degree of anxiety during COVID and in this post-COVID era that we're now living in, People are coming to work with a lot more personal anxiety and we can't expect them just to leave it at the door. Finally, Smriti and Simon, one big thing that we will see happen in our hospitals in the next decade. Simon. So I think what we're going to see is an ongoing trend towards more day case surgery. So that's people not staying overnight in hospitals. And that's going to mean that we move away from wards where people are sleeping overnight to much more podded type environments where people come in and have their procedure, stay a few hours and go home. Thank you very much indeed, Simon. Smriti. Okay, so I would say, first of all, hospitals don't exist in isolation. They aren't immune to wider trends and a big trend at the moment, and quite rightly so, is sustainability. So I expect to see hospitals really addressing the green agenda. We're starting to see a little bit of that now. I think hospital car parks will be very different. We'll have far more electric vehicle charging points. We'll have more public transport. We'll have more bicycle spaces. We may have charging points for electric bikes. And that brings us to the end of today's show. The warmest of thanks to Smriti Singh from Arcadis and to Simon James, the CEO of Kim's Hospital in Kent. If you enjoyed that, then make sure you subscribe. You'll find fresh podcasts, all to do with the future of our cities, our communities and their recovery, popping up regularly at arcadis.com. And if you want to hear more, then head to Arcadis website for blogs and projects all about the future of our healthcare. You've been with Long Story Short, the Future Cities podcast from Arcadis. I'm Emma Nelson. Goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>